0: This podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is the historian and author Stephen Taylor. I spoke to Stephen about his book Sons of the Waves, The Common Seaman in the Heroic Age of Sail which charts the experiences of ordinary British sailors who headed out to sea during the 18th and 19th centuries. How did this come to be, the heroic age of sail?
2: Well, I think we it, it's quite easy for us to forget these days that Britain always had a very intimate uh, relationship with the sea. Our coastline runs for something of the order of 11,000 miles, uh, and yet no one lives more than about 70 miles from the nearest point to the sea. And so, obviously, from the earliest time, the sea you know, gave rise to fishing, obviously, um, but it was also used for transporting goods. At a time when the roads were unreliable, there was no means of real transport, and so for centuries it was actually easier for, to shift things up and down the coast, whether it was coal or uh, food or other sort of made goods, rather than uh, to taking them by road. So we always had this large population of sailors uh, and they always had that sort of quite distinctive identity. They were, you know, they were separate from the people who worked the land. Uh, The sailor was always known as Jack Tar. Tar came from this idea that you had this, you know, this material which you used to make your your, your garments watertight and was used on ropes, it was used on sails. And these men... Well, they dressed differently from other commoners. Uh, they talked differently. They had their own language. Uh, they even walked differently, largely because they were always working on a on, on a rolling deck. Uh, and largely as a result, they were kind of regarded as a bit of an oddity, something of a of an outsider.
0: And in in terms of being perceived as an oddity and an outsider, in a positive way or in a negative way.
2: Ah, well, over the period that we're talking about, they went through a huge series of of changes in the public perception. I mean, if you go back to the earliest times, now we go to Daniel Defoe, who, of course, was the author of Robinson Crusoe. Now, curiously, Robinson Crusoe, although it's about a castaway, had quite a significant impact on the culture of the seamen at the time, actually encouraged for the excitement that it generated people to go of a certain kind to actually go to sea. But now Defoe wrote, and this is going back to the early 18th century, he wrote that sailors swear violently, whore violently, and drink violently. And being violent fellows, they really ought to be encouraged to go to sea. So there was that perception in the very early days that uh, you you, you wanted to be quite wary of these men. And I suppose the experience of, which we may come to, of uh, the way they behaved when they came on shore after a long voyage, certainly um, uh, sort of helped to create that, if you like, widespread perception.
0: How did these men end up on ships? Um, Who were they, where did they come from, and how did they end up at sea?
2: Well, um, I think you could say that uh, there was always a particular device. That we always had this large seafaring population, you know, as I say, seamen, f- fishermen. Um, but the, at times of war, and this is really the period that we're talking about in the so- so-called heroic age of sail, the Navy had a a device that served it well, and that was the power of impressment. Now, The press gang is probably the most uh, controversial aspect of our naval history. You know, you have these uh, images of the cudgel wielding thugs tearing the seaman away from the bosom of his family. And certainly it was a very, it could be a very, very ugly practice. Um, But simply, this was a royal prerogative that empowered the Navy to forcibly uh, recruit men who, as it was termed, used the sea. That is to say, there were already seafarers. Now, if we look at the very, if you like, sort of one of the earlier parts of my of my era of my study, it begins, as is always <laughs> apparent over this period, with war. Uh, and we had the, the Seven Years' War, which began with France in 1756. And at that point, the number of seamen in naval service uh, was just over 10,000 men. By the end of that Seven Years' War, that number was more than 84,000. So it had gone increased by eightfold. But at the same time, that particular era, that strength the British uh, 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 Navy established in that time, was the uh, means by which really Britain made sail really set sail. And it must be emphasised that it wasn't just in naval terms. You know, I think we're so inclined to look at our seafaring past, our maritime past in terms of uh, battles, culminating as always in Trafalgar. But there were so many other and so many significant maritime endeavours.
0: That was something I wanted to ask you about, which is that this is, on the one hand, a story of um, the great era of naval battles, but there were other strands of seafaring at this time, of which battles were only a small part. Can you tell us a bit about what some of those voyages of exploration and trade involved as well?
2: Of course. The key, if you like, to um, opening up the wider seas uh, to Britain was the relationship with India. You know, The uh, comprehension by the East India Company, as it was established, that here lay a a, a means of power, of trade, of goods, which were going to increase in value once they were brought to Britain. And so you had the creation of the Indiamen. These were the ships, the cargo ships, but also, in fact, of course, the first passenger ships, which were transporting those who were in the service of the East India Company, civilians, some military, but also civilians, to and from India. Uh, and trade with india was the if you like some of the one of the first platforms which was to create uh, an interest in the distant seas we'd always been rather confined in our interest across the atlantic obviously there was america but once the east opened up it also opened up well the potential for as they saw it huge wealth and It must also be said, uh, not to be too cynical, uh, the age of enlightenment, the age of discovery, the age of interest in distant fields. So we're talking about discovery, trade, mapping, uh, navigation. And very early in the picture of of those endeavours, apart from India, we have the voyages of James Cook who was the, um, you know, the, the, the explorer and the navigator who led the way to the South Seas, um, which opened up a very romantic vision of, the, um, of, of the, the, the world beyond, if you like, our backyard. And so you had the, the common seamen who were very much a part of this endeavour because the whole thing was quite impossible without them, whether it was transporting uh, goods from, to and from India, Uh, Or the discovery of these exotic corners of the world, Tahiti and all its beauties. Uh, You had this uh, world where a man from a simple village would come back home and tell his people back in his village of what he had seen in these exotic places, wonderful animals, extraordinary people, different cultures, All this being brought back into uh, a a, a small domestic world where actually those who were interested and had their fancies taken by this notion of the world beyond were themselves encouraged to make those voyages themselves.
0: And do you think that these somewhat lofty ideals of adventure and great wealth and exoticism were they the main attractions for the common seamen to to join up
2: I think there was there was a there was a first level and that was simply we, we must perhaps bear in mind that um, uh, agriculture was I- in a period of decline, in the mid eighteenth uh, century, and a lot of the people who had been making uh, living from the soil were having to look for alternatives. And uh, the uh, there were these elements which drew people to the sea, perhaps not always for the romantic dream, but for simple practical purposes. And as I say, we have this time where seamen are suddenly in demand. There is a need. For this crucial national resource, men who can go aloft and get the ship under motion to be taking them uh, around the world. And once the seaman, or at least the the local man who goes on his ship and learns the ropes, as it were, he discovers that he's, what does he get? Well, he gets food for one thing, Uh, he gets um, a lot of drink arguably far too much because there was almost a tendency towards alcoholism amongst uh, uh, quite a number of of seamen. Uh, He gets money. Pay was very variable. The Navy rate of pay had stayed the same for almost 150 years. But uh, it came in a form where a man might have been at sea for a, a year and he comes ashore and he gets his money. And suddenly he is briefly uh, very, very wealthy, and of course, it, 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 it. I mean, it brings out the profligacy of these men. They had all their energies bottled up on board ship for so long. Now they're briefly wealthy when they come ashore. There was also, uh, I think, it, it, one couldn't uh, and shouldn't overstate the, uh, the another factor in this money element. But there were stories which would be created of prize money now. When a, 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 an enemy ship was taken, it brought pay for the officers, obviously, but it also had a proportion of that would go to the seamen. And prize money did actually make a very small number of men, but a number of men nevertheless, briefly, very, very wealthy, and that would these were kind of uh, if you like, currents, the information that would spread around communities. Ultimately, I would like to also just to emphasize one other aspect of what kept men at sea. And this was a kind of a kinship. Because once men had been uh, working together on a, on a ship which involved considerable um, uh, discomfort, danger... Uh, they nevertheless formed themselves into a kind of a unit which had a tribal aspect to it. You know, They were very, very loyal to one another. There was loyalty to the king, but next came, and more important was the ship, and finally and most important of all was their fellows. And um, I, I, I have an interesting uh, reflection by a surgeon, a naval surgeon, who studied... Uh, these men who were in his care for many years, uh, and what he wrote was, The mind of these men is trained to brave the fury of the elements with a degree of contempt for danger and death that is to be met with nowhere else. Excluded by the employment they have chosen from all society, the deficiencies of education are not felt, and information on general affairs is not courted. Their pride... Consists in being reputed a thoroughbred seaman, and they look on all landsmen as beings of an inferior order. We have there uh, the essence of this kind of strength, this bond that made them uh, at the, the, the you know the Jack Tar uh, in the period of his greatest endeavours an, an almost um, well um, a, a very a very hard to beat kettle of fish.
0: So that quote um, there spoke about the dangers as well as the discomforts. What were some of the greatest risks involved for men at sea? And what were the greatest fears of the common sailor?
2: We can always imagine that the uh, toll of battle was very high. And certainly if a man was hit by a cannonball, uh, that was uh, obviously it. But far and away, far and away, the the greatest number of men who died at sea did so from disease. Scurvy clearly was the um, was the great plague of the sea, uh, and uh, until the uh, remedies for it had been discovered, which were had largely to do with citrus fruit, um, it took off a great number a great number of men. I mean, there, there was also uh, there was a, a great risk clearly uh, of going aloft. I mean, the um, you, you know the ships logs will record. How men who'd been working aloft in a storm came tumbling down from the yards, the yards were the beams, of course, which all the sails landed on deck and or um, uh, in the sea uh, always if they did go into the sea, there would be an immediate attempt to rescue a man. but um after uh, illness uh the the next highest cause of death was um, was accident at sea uh, and only ultimately. Uh, the, uh, the the casualties of, of battle.
0: You you spoke a little bit earlier about the great bonds that um, many crews felt, but they were also inherently quite a hierarchical structure. What were the dynamics of a ship's crew in this era?
2: Well, I think you would say that the, the tiers worked on the basis of um, those who were the newest recruits who were known as landsmen because they knew nothing of how the ship worked. And actually, a ship was a very complicated piece of machinery to bring it under control and to make it work in the right direction. You had the landsmen, who would be the youngest, the newest recruits, uh, and they would be shown the ropes. They would be doing the pulling and hauling that would be bringing the, um, the, the canvas, raising the canvas aloft. Then you had the seamen who would be rated ordinary, who those who'd served a basic apprenticeship and were uh, able to carry out some of the more uh, heavyweight manoeuvres, raising of anchor, um, also though assisting on the pulling of ropes. And then you had the, the elite. And the elite, of course, were the top men, the top men who would go aloft. There were a relatively a small proportion of the crew, probably about 25%, um, who had the who were the men held us in the highest esteem by their fellows? they were the ones who were taking the greatest risk, but who were also the ones who are getting that perhaps the greatest It must be said a sensation of um thrill and excitement. One can imagine, you know a man who's had the experience and now the strength to go aloft stands there uh, on the out on the yards. His feet are planted on ropes below, and he's working those that canvas while the ship is uh, surging across the great element. And there, the, the top man is is above and aloft, and he's seeing the magnificence of the world around him. It clearly had quite a, 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 a stirring impact on the on, on the the sensations that the individuals felt. And it was something which kept them there, gave them a pride, gave them a sense of self-respect. And it must be said, uh, won them the respect of their fellows as well as the officers.
0: And what about um, discipline? That was something else I wanted to ask you about. Ships uh, in this period have a reputation for being incredibly harsh. We're thinking, you know, of floggings and that kind of thing. Is that fair? Uh,
2: it is because It, it was absolutely unpredictable because it always came down to the one key figure, and that, of course, was a ship's captain. Now, a ship's captain was notionally uh, confined in what, the way he, the discipline that he could exercise. He wasn't supposed to give out more than 12 lashes at a time, lashes, of course, being the punishment that was inflicted by the cat of nine tails. In practice... Once a ship was at sea, uh, the, uh, the captain was king and he, um, he could get away with uh, a kind of behaviour which turned a very small number of ships into what were called hells afloat uh, because the conditions on those ships under those tyrants were so appalling. Uh, one might bear in mind that uh, desertions from those ships were uh, naturally very, very high. And so there was also a degree of common sense because, as I have said, the seaman was always a resource in great demand that even the potentially tyrannical captain saw the need to run a contented ship and at its best, that's what the navy did. I mean, the you know the captains who are most celebrated, the most successful, were those who actually cultivated uh, the the relationship which worked best with their seamen. Now, one could talk about you know the bonds that involved. Oh, perhaps uh, respect. Um, uh, but it, it may even be said that because of the intimacy of their world, there was also a degree of, well, affection, love even, between the best captains and their hands. Um, and a, a best cap, the best captains never had to look for men to come to his ship. He recruited them by reputation, in a sense.
0: Still to come on the History Extra
2: podcast. The end of the era was the coming of steam, and that changed uh, seafaring in all respects, Um, and essentially the creation, for the first time, of a standing force in the Navy.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate You need indeed
0: you speak in the book about um, mutinies. Uh, the mutiny on the bounty, perhaps the most famous gets a mention, of course. But how common were mutinies?
2: I think uh, what uh, there's one particular uh, area of mutiny, which is really, in the terms of the social history of this country, uh, is an extraordinary event extraordinary series of events which have never really uh, received the attention that they might have. It's a very uh, it's a very complex story, and I'm going to try and tell it as briefly as I can. But it, it, essentially, in 1797, France was in a position, the, the war was very closely poised, France was in a position to launch an invasion of Britain. And an army had actually been posted in Brest to launch that cross-channel invasion. At the same time, by this point, 1797, seamen in their numbers had become very, very angry. Their wages hadn't been increased for 150 years. Inflation was rising and they were seeing their families and those on shore suffering as a result. At a very crucial moment, at Easter Sunday... Uh, 1797 the uh, crews of the entire channel fleet announced that they would not go to sea until wages had been increased and they were to receive better rations now this is uh, the this is the the crew of an entire channel fleet 30,000 men on 80 ships They would not, they said, go to sea unless those things were granted, unless the king granted them a pardon for this mass mutiny, which is what it was in effect, and unless the French set out to invade. And if the French did set out to invade, then of course they would be there to come to the nation's defense. Well, the upshot was that they got. What they wanted. They got the wages increased, they got an agreement that rations would be improved, and they got a personally signed pardon from the king. Nelson, it was, who said that this had been such an orderly mutiny by, uh, by these men that it only served to show what a fine set of men, set of men the British sailors were. It it didn't quite uh, end there. Um, a, a second mutiny broke out at another anchorage uh, in pursuit of further reforms, which arguably were also necessary. But this time they were voicing a far more radical agenda and they were starting to resemble, so far as the wider population were concerned, almost those revolutionaries across the Channel in France. And, uh, well... <clears throat> Uh, factions started to appear on board the ships. The infighting broke out and order collapsed. In short, uh, this time the uh, the authorities stood firm. Um, a few of the mutineers escaped to France. Uh, Twenty nine men were hanged. But this, these, uh, these events typified, if you like, something of the nature of the rise of the common man, because they had shown that these men had shown that they did actually have this nation's destiny. They held it in their calloused hands, to put it no finer. Um, And it was followed almost immediately by a a, great period of redemption because it came in the form of battle. This was the time of the great battles. We had Camperdown, the major action at Camperdown, the Battle of the Nile, and of course, uh, the Battle of Trafalgar. All of this time, the officers in the charge of the men were recognising the true value of those under their command, from Nelson to Collingwood to Pellew, the great commanders of the time, all bore testimony to the absolute essential value of of the English seamen. There are plenty of these kind of testimonies. I think one of the most interesting, uh, and I would uh, would read it here, actually came from a French uh, captain uh, from Trafalgar who had surrendered his ship uh, and which was therefore being sailed by uh, British sailors when the storm which followed after the Battle of Trafalgar, when that storm descended. And the British seamen, he wrote, immediately set to work to shorten sail and reef in top sails with as much regularity and order as if their ships had not been fighting a dreadful battle we were all amazement, wondering what the English sailor could be made of.
0: Many of those uh, naval battles of this era have been immortalised in paintings and canvases and verse. But what was the experience of fighting them actually like for those involved? One of the things that you suggest about it is that it was actually characterised by remarkable brevity,
2: Yes, I think that's right. I mean, by comparison with, and this was something which was noted by uh, military officers who were witnesses to naval battles. You know, they pointed out how, you know, in the uh, a, a, a battle on ground would take, well, it could take days. I mean, certainly going to take quite a number of hours overnight and into the next day until things were resolved. Whereas because of the close proximity of ships when they were coming into battle, as it were, broadside to broadside, it was an utterly chaotic and certainly very bloody affair, but also almost impossibly confusing. Apart from the, um, you know, the officers, as it were, sort of observing from the from the uh, up on deck. For those below, it was just a sheer matter of getting to the guns, loading them uh, as rapidly as they could and firing, of course, but then seeing their whole world just consumed by smoke, because that's what happened. You know, you could see the gun in front of you, but you could barely see the chaps who are working the gun beside you. This is a repeated uh, refrain from those who were caught up in battle. Confusion, uh, but just a simple process of persevering at the guns until, as happened repeatedly again and again, uh, the enemy uh, gave up and said, we run down the flag and we um, we surrender.
0: Your book draws on the writing of many men who were at sea themselves. Uh, who were some of the characters that most captured your imagination?
2: I, I think it's quite interesting to to um, look at the whole nature of the Seaman's memoir. Now, of course initially it would have been thought that these men couldn't have written because they were clearly illiterate. Uh, well as it turns out and as has been coming increasingly to light over recent years, they a number of these men did write memoirs, did keep journals, kept diaries or or had their voices heard in the um in the court martials to which they to, to which they were uh, forced to uh, to submit. And I think the uh, the most interesting thing is that almost invariably, I think we talk about you know maybe eight or nine, ten uh, clear instances of diaries or memoirs or journals. There's a suspicion that these extraordinary stories, which many of them tell, cannot be true because uh, they sound like seamen's yarns, uh, and so. Uh, when I started to research them, I was going to um, to the records still kept at the National Archives in Q, the Admiralty records, where one can actually check the record of a man who served. He said he served on a particular ship. You will go to the uh, the crew list of that ship, and you will find his name there, where he when he came on board, uh, his service. If he had been beaten, that would be in the ship's log, uh, and so on. I think they're two particularly interesting characters. Um, And they're almost sort of paradoxical. Um, The the, the first of them is a man named John Uh, Nicol. I think he was a Scot. Uh, he He shows all the signs of the sort of thoughtful romantic. He came from a farming family, and yet he was actually taken to sea by reading Robinson Crusoe. Uh, He spent much of his life on various kinds of ship. He was uh, serving at the Battle of the Nile, but he was also a very interested and quite a a, a shrewd observer of uh, society in Polynesia and in China uh, during the 18th century. Uh, He'd always wanted to visit China, reasons that only he could explain. Perhaps it was just another of those stories. But actually, when he comes in sight of the mainland, he is absolutely exhilarated. He writes of the the immense number of buildings that was extending into the air as far as the eye could reach. Their fantastic shapes and gaudy colours, their trees and flowers. They're so like their paintings. Uh, And then there was the, uh, the Chinese way of serving food. He said, the Chinese eat anything that has life in it. I like their manner of setting up the table at dinner. All that is to be eaten is placed upon the table at once and all the liquors are at the same time. And then you have all before you and you may make your choice. I think the other part of his character which shows up is his, this romantic nature. He was actually on a ship transporting convicts to Australia, what is known as the, the Second Fleet. He was on a ship called the, uh, the Lady Juliana, where uh, relationships between the seamen and the uh, women convicts on board became a sort of a byword, almost a legend for the kind of a thing that could happen when, when these combinations were brought together. But Nicolás, as I say, romantic man that he was, fell hopelessly uh, in love with uh, a, a woman named uh, Sarah Whitlam. And as an indication of the length of their voyage, she actually bore his child while they were still at sea. And he, uh, loyal to his ship, felt that he had to go on with their journey, which was going to take them on to uh, the next stage. But but he would, at some point, come back, and they had agreed that um, they would marry. Well, um, he did persevere. He spent years sailing in a fruitless uh, process of trying to find Sarah again. He never did find her uh, and the reason was, well, she also had her own priorities and when she found herself in New South Wales, she found herself another man who was going to be able to support her and she went off to manage, they managed to escape to India. Um, But this was the kind of, uh, if you like, the essence of John Nichols' thoughtful Kind of character. Now, the other, the almost paradoxical side of uh, the personality I see is represented by a man named Jacob Nagel, an altogether more dashing kind of a chap. Uh, he, he was actually an American who fought uh, for American independence on land, and then uh, after that was over, he uh, he came on board a British navy ship and spent really almost all the rest of his life uh, serving on. British ships, uh, and he he too wrote an extraordinary memoir uh, about his experiences, from which it is very clear. Again, testing these stories against the uh, maritime records, the naval records, he was one of the one of those key seamen that every captain wanted to have. He was strong, he was agile, he was bold as brass. He would go up anywhere. He was always. A captain of the tops, which was the sort of, you know, the equivalent of being a common seaman who was actually an officer, because he he led his men up to the very top. There's one other character who I think kind of tells one other aspect of this story, and I think he's the sort of, he's that, he, he exemplifies the survival instinct amongst the seamen. There's a man named James Choice, um, he died in Brighton alone uh, in a lodging house in 1836. And it turned out that he had a journal uh, which describes uh, how he went to uh, sea at the age of 16. He was a London boy, uh, was taken prisoner off a whaler in Peru and spent some years in captivity amongst the Spaniards in Latin America and telling a very, in a very deadpan way about his survival uh, at the very edge over those years, um, all sounds, you know, amazing stories. I mean, he he becomes a pirate, then he does another spell in captivity, this time in France, and you start to wonder if this story can possibly really be, you know, if this is not another seaman's yarn. Well, he actually writes that while he was a prisoner of the French, this was an extraordinary admission in itself, he said, I disowned the name of an Englishman as it had always been unlucky for me. And he reasoned, who would not fight for so good a master as Bonaparte? Well, <clears throat> then, however, once he served Bonaparte for a few years and he finds himself uh, on the Brittany coast, he looks off and he sees a British fleet moored, anchored off there. So he steals a boat and rows out to a ship called the Theseus. Now, this is clearly now at the point where you say, no, come on, this is just nonsense. <laughs> you know. Well, go to the record, the log of that ship, and it certainly, it, there it is, it confirms that a man named James Choice came up the side of the ship from a boat and told a story of how he had escaped from a French prison. Always that survival instinct carries him to the next point where he finds another ship and eventually goes on, ends up, alone in a lodging house in Brighton.
0: <laughs> there are some really incredible stories. How did the stories of men like Nagel or John Nicol, how do they provide a new perspective on naval history, which quite often focuses on battles and commanders and the big picture stuff? How does looking at the lives of individual seamen offer something new to that?
2: I suppose we're talking about the end of an era, And um, the end of the era was the coming of steam. And that changed uh, seafaring in all respects. Uh, And insofar as the common seaman was concerned, it meant that the ships wanted smaller, more technically qualified crews. Um, And essentially the creation, for the first time, of a standing force in the Navy. Previously, as I said, Men signed on a ship. They moved from ship to ship. This was actually the creation of a Navy force in Toto. And I think you'd say at that stage, Jack Tar came ashore for the last time. But that legacy and that period, the end of that era was witnessed by a Polish seaman uh, who found his calling under... Uh, the uh, a canvas of British clippers and became one of the great writers of the English language. Uh, uh, this is um, Joseph Conrad. And I think he kind of wraps up, in, in a sense, he sort of brings this culture to which he had been a witness, the climax of that culture to an end, where he writes how his own character had been formed and shaped by his shipmates. And he put it like this. He said, These were men who knew toil, privation, violence, debauchery, but they knew not fear, and they had no spite in their hearts. They were men hard to manage, but easy to inspire. Voiceless men, but men enough to scorn in their hearts the sentimental voices that bewailed the hardness of their fate. It was a fate unique to them, and the capacity to bear it appeared to them the privilege of the chosen. They were the everlasting children of the mysterious sea.
0: That was Stephen Taylor. Stephen's book, Sons of the Waves, The Common Seamen in the Heroic Age of Sail, Is on sale now, published by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Wednesday when Andrew Adonis will be speaking about the Labour politician Ernest Bevan.